Welcome to Time Titans, the podcast that helps professionals navigate the intricate dance between the modern workplace and personal well-being. We're your hosts, Crystal Silden Tazwell, Leah Katz, and Sarah Beltran Ponce, and we're thrilled to be your guide on this transformative journey. All right, everyone. Hello. We are so excited to have one of my friends and colleagues here, Dr. Brandon Mahal. He's an associate professor of radiation oncology at the University of Miami, and I'm so excited to talk to him today. Dr. Mahal, welcome. Thank Um, you. Very excited to join. Thank you. Awesome. So I know about you, but (laughs) the audience doesn't. So can you just give us a little bit about your story, like where you grew up, your training and what you do now? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in a small town in Central California, Madera, California. I uh, grew up there and in Fresno, California, which is uh, the bigger metropolitan area in the San Joaquin Valley. was raised by my mom. So I was the only kid from my mom and my dad. I had uh, two older brothers and a sister uh, on my mom's side and, and two younger brothers on my dad's side. But I really, I grew up with my mom. She was a single mom. My older brothers were 17 and 13 years older than me, and my sister was 13 years older than me. So I was, I grew up as the baby, even though when I would uh, visit my dad and my younger brothers, I was the oldest brother there. Yeah, so I grew up in Central California, went to Madera Public Schools, Madera High School, before going to UCLA for undergrad and some small amount of time there playing baseball, but mostly focused on academics and eventually went into medicine and did my train did all of my medical training in Boston at Harvard so Harvard Medical School and then Harvard Radiation Oncology program before landing at the University of Miami in July of 2020 where I'm now in my fourth year as a physician scientist I treat GU malignancies mostly prostate cancer and also have a role as assistant director of community outreach and engagement at the cancer center where I'm able to bring a lot of my research efforts, which are focused on addressing cancer disparities and a a movement toward health equity, in particular, addressing the needs of our catchment area here in a very diverse region of the country in South Florida. So that's where I'm at now. You know, a majority of my time is, is actually spent on the research and admin side. I have about, depending on what my grant situation looks like 20 to 30% of my time is in clinic as a, as a radiation oncologist. Although I have another additional day or 20% of my time is spent doing clinic in the community, doing cancer screenings for about 50 to hundred patients a week. And then the, the other time is really split between admin and research for the other two and a half to three days, depending on how you look at it. Awesome. Thank you so much for um, giving us your background. And I honestly did not know it's been four years since I met you. Yeah, it's crazy. We'll hit the four year anniversary in July. But yeah, it was uh, it's like it's going by really fast. You know, got here in the middle of COVID and now you were a resident. Now you're an attending and we're you know, it's it's great to be colleagues. But yeah, things things have moved. It is. Did you move yeah. down to Miami as a response to the New England winters? Or It's a great question. So <laughs> when I went to medical school, I always I would end up back in California. My wife is also from California. She's born and raised in downtown Los Angeles. 
you know, so I thought that I was going to end up in, in California. We got comfortable in Boston. I'm, I'm happy to share a little bit about career decisions in Radonk, but I thought I was going to become a urologist originally and go back to UCLA for residency. And I was like set up that way and had a change of heart after doing a radiation oncology rotation right before apps were due, you know, ERAS for residency. So in any case, I was comfortable, but in, so November, 2019, PGY5 interview times, I thought I was going to stay in Boston, to be honest, but there was an opportunity to go check out University of Miami. They just got NCI designated at Sylvester Cancer Center. And I had some friends down here and I, you know, I thought, okay, worst case scenario, let's go like have a fun trip and check out Miami. And then, you know, by the time I finished the, the interviews, I was like, wow, I think I'm, I'm going to end up in Miami, actually. So, you know, part, you know, it is nice to, to miss out on, on the winners. And then obviously there was a little bit of a, a secular change with a movement down south from up north during the pandemic. But I actually signed a contract in November of 2019 before we knew that was going to exist. But, you know, we didn't move here until July 2020, drove, drove down. And so, yeah, I guess it was nice being here and maybe there was some response there, but it hasn't changed seasons yet since I've been here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are more than uh, happy to have you in Miami. I mean, I'm super excited to be here. It's like I have adjusted and I feel like I'm 305 all the way right now. Oh, so. yeah. 305. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how's your personal life? So you mentioned that you have a wife, but do you have kids and what does your wife do? Yeah, so I'm married with two kids. My kids are five and two. My wife, I met back in UCLA and we met in 2008, but we started our relationship in 2009. So we've been together for about 15 years, got married in 2015, coming up on our nine-year anniversary, 10 years, not too far away. Yeah, so she's a social worker by training. We both went to grad school in Boston. That was like both undergrad at UCLA and then I got into med school. She got into social work school at BC. And so we took the leap and it was, it was tough. It was tough for sure. Making that adjustment because we didn't have any family and, you know, we didn't have a lot of financial resources either. So being very far away from support without that, we only really had each other. So we've been together for a long time, had kids in 2018. Our first kid, my daughter, Amelia, who's five now. And I was a PGY four, just getting into research here when she was born. And then I had my son, Bryant. He's uh, two now. I had him in February of 2021, less than a year into being an attending. We're a full family, at least for now. My wife tells me no more kids. So it's us, me, my wife, and my daughter and my son here living in Miami. Amazing, amazing. And you have the cutest kids. Like, no. <laughs> thank you. Just to put thank that you, out there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. They're so much fun and, and really everything to, to me and to us. It's the best job is being a dad, that's for sure. Totally. I totally agree. I totally agree. Becoming a parent definitely makes everything change. But, uh, oh, yeah. Changes you significantly, that's for sure. How would you say your like time management skills changed? So not even necessarily like from a medical student to a resident, but even as just like a non-parent to a parent. 
Yeah, it's a crazy adjustment, right? And you think you know for folks who are who are considering kids and have a plan to have kids, which always had that feeling, my wife and I, that we were going to have kids. I really wanted to have kids. You know, she was like, I'm cool with my dog. And then later on, she really wanted to have kids too. So we both were on the same page with, with having kids. And you think you know, but you have no idea. And yeah, there had to be major adjustments to, to time management. I would say like it becomes a lot more important of a skill because you have other humans to worry about who rely on, you know, you and if you're if you're lucky to have a partner in the situation, rely on on, you know, you and your partner to really care for them and make sure they're alive and thriving and things like that. And coupling that with a demanding schedule with not so much social support, right? Even I would say this is a strange time to even have kids during the pandemic where even if you had social supports, maybe you were social distancing to help, you know, protect your older parents or your family members, et cetera, et cetera. So there were major, major adjustments to the schedules and, and time management. Understood. Definitely. And you're so busy, like at home and then at clinic, you were just telling us that you're in the community one day, you have clinic, you know, one day, and then you have research. So specifically, what does your like morning routine look like on one of those days? Yeah. So I'll start from sleep. <laughs> so the way I've really thought through my days, I would say going back to before kids, like I was rigid with my schedule, but it, we had a very selfish schedule, my wife and I, because we could be, you know, it was like we were going to work. Each of us had very busy schedule. She had a super long commute. We didn't have a car. So she was taking public transit. We were working at least 12 hours a day, but we were like, after that, we were working out for like two hours a day and there was no problem with that. And then, you know, at some point you eat dinner and you go to sleep and, you know, you do it all over again. And there, there weren't really, we didn't have um, too much to worry about outside of work. Now we do prioritize sleep big time. That hasn't always been the case. I would say, you know, during residency, being on the grind, medical school on the grind, sacrificed a lot of sleep and took detriments to that. You know, we both did, you know, health impacts from that. You're not taking care of yourself. So we generally are sleeping somewhere around 10 to 5 a.m., at least for me. So I'm like 10 to 5 a.m. My wife sleeps a little, starts her sleep a little later, wakes up a little later. So I'm usually the first one up at five. And I start getting ready for the day, you know, get ready, have coffee, usually a latte, sometimes go downstairs to the Dunkin' Donuts. I live inner city and we have a Dunkin' Donuts here. So I carried that with me from Boston and then I get things ready. So like I need to get, usually I do the night before I would have had the dishes loaded. So I'm cleaning the dishes, getting everything ready for the kids having, you know, everything out for their lunch boxes and their backpacks and things like that. And then if there's laundry, a load, it's like getting that ready to go. Always, there's always a load of laundry going on. You know, we really try to maintain so what we like keeping our space in order and my kids even more so than me, they'll let me know if I'm leaving something on the ground, they'll let me know to go ahead and pick it up or whatever. <laughs> so in any case, you know, getting the house ready in the morning is at like five to six a.m. hour, and then I would say from six to seven, usually I'm working on 
something, whether it's like reading or preparing for a talk or writing research or doing something where it's a little like not anything that's too intense. It's like a, a you know, a, my what you would call, I guess, deeper work is at 6 to 7 a.m. hour. And I'm flexible. I'm, I'm really flexible with what I'm doing in that hour because demands change and needs change. And, you know, you're, you're, there's seasons for being busy and seasons for research. And, and, you know, really, I think it's important to be flexible. And then in general, that 7 to a.m., 8 a.m. slot, you know, we have department meetings sometimes, tumor board, chart rounds. And then I occasionally have meetings on some of the other days for uh, cancer center related activities. So there's about three days a week where I'm having 7 a.m. meetings and one day a week where I'm like early, you know, coverage for the machine starting at seven. So usually there's only one or two days in the week where that 7 a.m. isn't already filled up with a slot. And on the days where I'm not machine coverage, I try to be there for kid drop off. Unfortunately, um, our daughter goes to a school that's less than half a mile away. And my son, he's in a preschool that's less than half a mile away. So the total commute time between dropping them off is about 15 minutes. That usually lands me back at home around, depending on the day and the types of meetings, but somewhere between 8 and, you know, 8.20. And I usually walk to the train station, which is a block away. It sounds weird, but I, I use public transportation in my current living situation more than I ever did anywhere else. So I live a block away from the train. I take that to work, which as you know, Crystal drops us off right right in front of the cancer center. And it's like a 15 minute door to door ride. So I'm usually getting in to work somewhere between eight and eight forty when it's not a day where I have to be there at seven. And then I start my day. And that day varies, you know, what whether it's admin, like again, I have about eight to twelve meetings per week that recur. And then I will have to check in on screenings for my screening clinics in the community, sign off on those, do those notes. And then the other times are research, which is, you know, again, anywhere from one to two days, depending on the week. And that's my personal research, med students, trainees, things I do as an editor, a reviewer, and, you know, any planning committee activity for conferences. So really the, any scholarly activity falls, falls within that. I try my best to wrap up my day by 5.30 PM and at least by 5.45. And I try to pick up, might be a part of pickup and, and pickup is like anywhere between the 6 and 6.10 PM range for my kids. So by then I would have put in almost 12 hours of work in general. And then I pick up my kids and I have like six to 10 basically, you know, so it's like pick up kids, we're back at home by 615. That hour 615 to seven is eating and doing homework with my daughter. And then seven to eight is like getting ready, everyone's getting ready for bed. We're kind of playing, you know, playing hide and seek, whatever it is that my kids are into at their age, and that that changes. And then eight, eight to nine is really sort of bedtime, hopefully they're down by 830. And then 8.30 to 9 is like a full sweep through the house, get the dishes loaded, clean the house. And 9 to 10 is the hour that my wife and I usually are relaxing. And so it's a busy day with kids. You, you basically have seven hours of sleep, 12 hours of work, and somewhere between four to five hours to get things together. And, and in terms of like physical activity, 
what I've been doing a lot of is, is just walking everywhere. So during work, if I have 15, 20 minutes, I walk, I generally work through the 12 o'clock hour. I'm like the diet that works for me is intermittent fasting. So I, I don't take a, a lunch per se, but I usually will like, you know, some kind of walk and our campus is beautiful. We could get sunlight during that time as well. And then I, you know, the weekends are different and I'm a little bit, I, I participate in weekend worrying with the kids, but in general, yeah, that's, that's what a general day looks like, even though whatever the, the work is in between can look very different. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I really love your setup and how you have everything planned out and I love your commute. That is a yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice. There, you know, there there's no perfect situation, but it gives it gives a lot of time. We're happy where we're at. We live in, you know, again, we live in in the financial district. You know, Brickle. Mm-hmm. We're in a, a three bedroom for us, which is a lot of space for us. We're happy with, and it, yeah, everything's just so close, and so we're we're safe. You know, saving anywhere between one to two hours per day. So that's that's been really nice for settling into a routine. Most definitely. Yeah. Props to you for doing so much. I think like kid and housework for a male, which, you know, even though I think a lot of our male colleagues are doing a lot of it, like I don't think all are. And, you know, research shows that, you know, even in, even in dual physician households or, you know, any like two professionals, like a lot of it still falls on the female. So I give you a lot of, I give you a lot of credit. It sounds like thank you're participating you. a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely a partnership. I, I really wanted to be a part of my kids' lives. You know, I didn't, I, didn't, I grew up uh, without my father, really. Yeah. You know, I knew him and I would see him, but there's definitely uh, some childhood trauma uh, driving a lot of uh, my response, but it's, it's so nice to be a part of. And I, I'm so lucky to be with my wife, who, again, I, I mentioned was she trained in social work, but now she's a psychotherapist. She runs a, a private practice from home. Almost everything's from home doing televisits. And so we're both we stay very busy. And like the amount of time that we spend doing things to get the kids ready, we we try to to keep eat. I mean, there's it's not like one of us is going to be sitting down watching the other one do things. So we're just, you know, constantly helping whatever the situation is. I tend to be more of the, like the cleaner, cleaning the house, doing the dishes, getting the laundry. And she likes to cook more and we don't necessarily split tasks, but we split time. And that's what works for us. And we didn't like, it wasn't like she assigned things to me or vice versa. It's just, this was the natural split that we found ourselves in after having kids, especially, you know, she breastfed, uh, she was able to breastfeed and she breastfed during the, you know, kids being newborns and infants. And so I was like, all right, I got to get up early and make sure everything's ready in this house and, you know, participate as much as I could. And obviously during the initial stages, there's the, the wake ups and the poopy diapers and things like that. So as much as you can help, and we don't have family support around but it's yeah it's yeah. been nice it's it's uh I'm uh, fortunate to be in a, a good relationship that's great I also think it's really like commendable that like you're obviously involved in so much and you know where where you work and you have admin and clinic and I'm sure you have a lot of mentorship responsibilities too but like I think a lot of people with as many roles as you have aren't wrapping up their day between 5 30 and 6 
at least in my experience. And I, I don't know if you have colleagues. I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know what the culture is down in Miami, but like, I think a lot of people I know with that many roles are sort of working towards seven, eight, 9 PM. So can you just talk about like how, you know, sort of how you're like managing all of your different tasks? Like is every task, like it's like a grant review, like a, an hour in your calendar. Do you have a to-do list? Like how is, how is everything happening by 5 PM? I guess is Right. The Right. Yeah. So I, I think like, first of all, I would say two things which are not task related that, that I really emphasize. One is making sure I'm sleeping early and waking up early. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that has helped a lot. And that's something that I've, I've changed as a new attending. And yeah. I've really emphasized getting, getting that sleep. And then uh, two is being flexible. So as much as I can be flexible, like in a I'm sure a lot of people who are who may be tuning into this have been all or nothing. You know, we're in medicine, we have a lot of type A personalities. The situation I was in before where it was if I were doing something all or nothing, if I could not do the task the way I wanted to do the task, I wouldn't do it. You know, whether that was like, I couldn't work out for two hours. Okay, so I'm not going to work out today. And so so I had to really break that and be flexible with myself and be kind to myself with, with what I could accomplish and know that like, all right, I have those four hours at the end of the day. If I prioritize it, that's only like 15% of your day. And so what I generally do is at work, I'm really, really like trying to stay on task with work. And so I try my best when I'm in control of my schedule to schedule meetings like more in the later to early afternoon. So anywhere like one to 3 p.m. And that way I, I can, you know, budget a lot of tasks early on. So I have a lot, you know, there'll be mandatory meetings that happen in between that. But me- meetings that I can avoid scheduling, I try to push to later in the day. I do use calendar slots. I do like to use Outlook to remind myself, like that's really my crutch. For clinic, we have Epic and we have Aria. I just use, you know, signing my note as my checklist. So I don't add checklists to clinic. I used to, but then what I found is that I was creating another task that I was spending more time on task managing than doing the task itself. So I've, I've trimmed that part out of really just starting to use, there's so many task managers within the tasks we do now. And I, I started trusting those and using those. So Epic and Aria, I use those. If I'm in clinic, in between patients, I'm like, I'm contouring, even if it's a little bit safe, a little bit safe, and I will try to get contours done same day. I get my notes in same day. I, I generally prep 30 minutes to an hour before clinic. You know, I have my plan in mind. And, and usually it's like, it goes 80% that way. And, and the other 20% is the discussion. And then, you know, with, with, again, with other tests, definitely use calendar, but I'm, I'm okay with being flexible. I keep a, a big board, a whiteboard of the big things that I have going on. So big projects, you know, anything that's a, a research project, a study, a grant, a committee that you have, you know, reviews due for, I keep that. So I know, you know, front and center, and I'll add it to my calendar. Usually I'll add the deadline and I'll give myself Two one uh, two reminders one week apart. So starting two weeks before, I'll get a reminder and another reminder, and I try to block hours off. And then I, unless it's mandatory, mandatory, 
I really push back on after hour meetings. And I think a big reason why, you know, and it's hard because some meetings have to happen then because that's the only time everybody can meet. But if it's a checkbox meeting, I will sometimes tune in to Zoom, but I really, I make it known that it's not a good idea, especially for for young faculty who might have kids. And it's understandable why others may not do it, you know, may be more open to, to doing that. But I, I'm pretty rigid around my boundaries with after hours meetings. And, you know, it, you can't make everybody happy doing that. But at the end of the day, it's like, I have a product to produce. And if I, if I produce that, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm accomplishing my tasks without, you know, filling the plate too much with, with meetings. And that I feel like that's the biggest area that I've received some mentorship around, you know, like you have to be really selective around how you schedule that time. Cause it could just all go to checkbox meetings. And, and that's, I guess that's been, that's been my approach. You know, I try to protect my weekends. Sometimes when you're in a busy season, I will work on the weekends for those tasks that, you know, I, I still uh, cut off. So I I'm able to spend time with my kids on those, on those weekdays. And I'll do work on the weekends, but in general, after like logging a 60 hour work week, I feel pretty good about really protecting my weekends as well. And I feel like that's important to me. And like, for me, that's the the life worth living is, is being able to be there for most of the kids drop offs and pickups, being able to spend a couple hours with them a day and being able to have the whole weekend with them. And that's not that much. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I, I like that you ended with that's really not that much because like when people in medicine hear that, we're all like, like my ears, I'm like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> like you're like, you're right. It's not that much time with your kids and your wife. Right. Like, right. But our like innate, like, you know, workaholism and, you know, whatnot. I'm just like, oh, that's amazing. But yeah, it's not that much time. But I think that's really, I think it's a great way to like think about your schedule and approach, um, you know, like having those broad goals, like pick up weekends and then like kind of shut like you know putting everything else around that I think that's really great yeah no I mean I think that makes a lot of sense do you um in terms of like your like managing your focus and your energy so we had Erin Gillespie on recently and she also spoke about putting most of her meetings in the afternoon to leave her mornings open for deep work and thinking and writing are you constantly it sounds like you're into exercise and all and all that stuff like are you constantly also thinking about like energy slash focus management yeah, for sure. I think that's a huge thing because you're fresh in the morning, you know, scientifically, that's when you're in your more creative space. I try to use, I always try to budget that, that hour too. That's like a quiet hour yeah. in the morning after getting things ready. But also once I start my work day, it may not be, it, it's not as slow and creative as that first hour, but it's, it's more uh, getting some work done that's related to projects and, and, you know, sort of taking stock of everything that you you have ongoing. I really, really do try to 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 keep that clear for for that energy space. And and again, you know, during that lunch hour, I'm, I'm usually like budgeting some kind of 15, 20 minute walk. But I'm also doing that like at different parts during the day, whenever I can, even if it's a clinic day and, you know, I'm coverage or whatever, if there's some kind of block in my schedule. I'll just try to go walk around somewhere and like, and just get, you know, get my energy clear, get my head clear, 
breathe a little bit, especially when it's nice outside. I, I try to do that. We have a gym on campus as well that I, I usually use occasionally. I live in a building with a gym. It doesn't have everything in there, but honestly, like for dad workouts, it's great. So I do those on the weekend. I'll, I'll do those like, you know, I'll do something that is, is not like I used to do where it, was, it had to be, you know, a two hour workout, but it's just very focused, intentional part, you know, something that is hard for about 30 minutes. And then on the weekend where we usually do things that require us to walk like six hours a day or ride bikes or things like that. So like, you know, really like doing a family weekend warrior style. I try to get to the beach. We have the first couple of years I was here, I wouldn't go. And I was like, all right, this is a problem. So I, I try to go and do like a long walk with the kids as much as I can. If I need to carry them, I'm okay with it. That's like a workout. So it's like, you know, all these, these ways to, to incorporate being, being very active without necessarily being in the gym. And, you know, that was, yeah, that was uh, during residency, I put on like 40 pounds. And since being here, I was able to get that back off <laughs> in a very different way, though. And I didn't, you know, it, in a very flexible way, I don't have, if I have the free time, that's what I'll do is I'll, I'll try to be active and, you know, incorporate it into life more rather than setting it, always setting it aside because things come up, you know things come up yeah. in life that that can interrupt that. And then and then what do you do? You, you drop out of your habit. So I try to build habits that are, are that are very resilient to, you know, life's forces and the things that are coming your way, loss, illness, things like that. So I'm not saying I have it all down, but I've, I've been very flexible in my approach. And that's that's helped me a lot. I will say one common trend that I'm seeing on the guests that we have are these like really fast and focused workouts. And I like how you called it a dad workout. I'll call yeah. it a workout. Yeah. But yeah, like I'm definitely where you are. I was like completely like all or nothing workout. If I can't get like an hour and a half in, I'm not doing it. But, um, you know, since knowing Leah and <laughs> hearing her workout routine, I've been doing like the 15 to 30 minute focus workouts. Yeah. So much better for like just energy and everything at the beginning of the day. So I definitely commend you for doing that as well. And just for being flexible, because it's so it's easier said than done. Like, it's definitely a process in learning how to be flexible with things. So right, right. Yeah. And you could start beating yourself up if you have, if you have a process, you know, or, or your system, and you're not able to do exactly what it is that you had planned it can make you feel really bad and it can make you drop out of that because you're feeling so bad about it. So, and that's happened to me, you know, a lot. And I think in medicine, we, yeah, again, we have so many things that are beyond our control that dictate how busy we're going to be, that it's important to just do what you can and be happy with that and do more when you can do more, do less when you have to do less. And that, yeah, flexibility is, is, been a huge, huge thing that I've emphasized, especially over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's great. I have just a general question for you. Like, obviously, you put a lot of thought into, you know, like your mental well-being, physical well-being, your relationships with, you know, your kids and your wife. Like, how do you see, you know, culture in general in medicine slash right on specifically since we're all radiation oncologists, you know, around wellness right now like in my view and i speak about this a lot i think there's kind of a, a large rift between people who think it's important and worthwhile 
And then people who think people are interested in wellness are lazy and don't want to work hard. Um, as cliche and sort of simplistic as that sounds, like how do you view where we're at and how do you sort of, you know, adapt, like how have you adapted maybe your own practices to the overall culture? Right. Yeah, no, great question. And I think it's there's a couple of points I'd like to make about that. And I totally agree with you. There's there's definitely a rift in medicine in general, but I would say in particular, radiation oncology is one of the fields because things have changed a lot over over the last decade, really. So I'll say like, I remember being a med student, getting ready to go into urology and going from, and not that this is entirely behind the decision, but going from waking up at not even waking up, getting to getting to the hospital at four or 5am granted as a as a sub I, and then leaving at like 10 or 11. And like booking my taxi before Uber, for the next morning to get to back to the hospital, because I knew I was going to be I was just going to wake up and roll into the hospital. So anyways, you know, I got to Radonk and saw something a lot different, even on the training side, although, you know, you could have contours until the end of time. But what I've seen as an as a change, and, and there's data to, to back this up. But then, you know, clinic and the department I was at was was starting, you know, still at 7am, but slow really at eight. And they were really good at like wrapping up around five, like having the machines done at five, six at the latest. And over time, I think I've, I've seen a, a little, a little bit of a drift on that and individual physicians working more for less. And there's data to definitely back that up. So there's a, I would say you could call it bias because I am early career, but even for the residents now, like residency is there, it's a lot more involved. There's more studies to learn. The disease sites have evolved. The technologies are a lot more advanced. The contouring is a lot more intense. And so I think it's, it's even more important to try to understand that the demands are different. And I think they're, the demands are a lot higher than what they used to be not even that long ago, you know, back in 2013, 2014, when I rotated as a, as a medical student. So 10 years ago. I've seen that change in the field. And, and again, we have, we have data to support that. But I guess as that's changed, the folks who were already attendings at the time were more senior. I think a little bit harder to detect that change. And also their situations may have changed. You know, the more senior you get, if you have a family, they're older, they're more able to care for themselves. Maybe, you know, you're, you don't feel the pressure of waking up early to get a couple of tasks done. And you're not so conflicted with that pickup time with your kids because your kids are getting around on their own. They're in college, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I see the divide there really is, is a lot. It's really hard to remember what it's like for folks who had a young family or, you know, there, we have a lot of senior people or leaders who, who may not even, even have taken that course. And so of having, you know, a family and been more career, career focused, which is, you know, not saying either one is right or wrong. It's just that if we want to support a positive workplace culture, we have to, you know, really be mindful of the demands of young families. And that's going to disproportionately fall, especially the female attendings who have kids, who have children, and then also any of the resource limited physicians who will be disproportionately from more minority populations. I think there, I definitely 
feel that there is a is is a divide. At least there's more awareness around data. And I do feel that, you know, the the generations that are coming and I'm I would be hopeful and optimistic that this generation's really prioritizing wellness. And I've seen it even within my own department. Like we've devised strategies to help reduce burden on attendings and young attendings. And we try to regulate how late we'll treat on on protons. Like when we first got our proton machine, they're like, run it, run it all the time, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, run it all the time. And then, you know, some you lose some faculty because they're, they're not game for that. And then, you know, then the institutions take notice. So there's, you know, the, the pendulum has to swing back and forth, but I'm, I'm optimistic for the next generation and like the, you know, upcoming generations of, of radiation oncologists have like been some of the best from their medical schools and have done really great. And I'm, I'm optimistic about the future leadership and in particular as it applies to work-life balance. Yeah. I think you bring up a lot of the nuance about the changes in RADONC that we don't necessarily consider. Like, you know, I hadn't even really thought about the fact that there is so much more data these days and it is much more like sort of intellectually cumbersome for, um, for residents. You know, I, I think in some ways, like the older generation is like, oh, things are so much easier. You have all these resources, you have this, you have that, you can work from anywhere. But in a lot of ways, I think it's just created a situation where like the learning is endless, the ability to do work is endless. Right. You know, yeah. You so could you could have volumes forever, you know, yeah. depending on how many attendings you're covering. As a resident, I was definitely on some rotations where I was always up till 1 a.m., you know, contouring everybody's case. And that was, I was like, this is normal. This, <laughs> you Yeah. Know. I think it's yeah. very true that whoever you're surrounded by, like whether it's in medical school, residency, or your first jobs, you sort of look to the, your superiors for you, like as an example for your work-life balance. Right. It's not always the best way to do it because it's all you know. And you're sort of like you have, you know, you're already anxious and, you know, feeling like new anyway. So you're kind of like looking to them to model. And that can be I think that can be really dangerous because if you're put with somebody who works 24 seven and then you don't want to work 24 seven, you just feel like that's you feel like by default you're doing something wrong. Right. And it is dangerous to compare in that situation because most likely whatever your personal situation is at home and otherwise is going to be very different. Like including like you're going to have much less support at work. There's going to be much less attention to your needs because you're junior, no matter what, you know, like the senior people get more support and that's they've they've been known longer in the department. They've established their supports. Their home life is going to be different than yours, even if they had one that was similar to yours at one point. And I think, you know, it's something that I constantly try to remind myself of because the time's always running. We're only getting older that to remind myself of how it used to be and I, you know, and how it can be for residents and trainees. And I hope that if I'm lucky enough to age in this career, um, that I'm able to keep that perspective that it might be different, completely different for somebody who's, you know, 10, 20 years younger than me. Yeah. I also just want to highlight the nuanced point you brought up about some people who are able to, you know, afford varying levels of child care, which I think can really also impact people's productivity. I actually right. do a great study to look at people's academic productivity compared to their, like their child care hours and you could stratify it by the age of their kids. Right. You know, I, think, I think these are things that 
people aren't thinking about and really mm -hmm. can make or break someone's academic career and their success in an academic setting or a private setting. Right. And they're like such important conversations, especially for new families or people with, you know, people with younger kids. Um, yeah. And there's a lot more we could do to support. And, you know, I think it would, it's a great place to study because I'm, I'm sure if you looked at a study of, of supporting younger parents and there, there are some, but they're, they're, they're not done to scale, but hospitals could do a lot there. It's very hard to get into the limited childcare options that there may be, but, you know, you could imagine robust systems that are integrated within the workplace that would really allow for less financial burden, less stress about where your kid is and like the time to getting your kid to wherever they need to be or, you know, all of those things really have an impact on how you're going to do at work. You know, what, like you could have a whole full on day before you get to work and then worrying at work is, is another thing. And by, you know, the younger attendings who are having kids, obviously, and if they're not coming from having a situation with a lot of financial means, you're not going to be, able, by the time you're able to afford it, your kids are already not needing it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it speaks to just this thing about work in general, which I think is just a broader, broader conversation that we're trying to tap into, which is, you know, I think some people might listen to this and say, well, it's not like your job's responsibility to care about your personal life and the troubles that you're facing as an individual. But I think we're just sort of seeing that that like while some people might say that and maybe objectively, I guess you could maybe logically reason that that's true it doesn't like pan out in, in reality. Like if that's the right. way a department feels about their employees, like the, the retention will probably be low. You know what I mean? Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you're spending more hours at work than you are with your family. Um, and, you know, I think these things, even though they maybe seem super soft and personal and, you know, vulnerable, like they really need to be considered for people. Yeah. And it's expensive to have turnover, you know, because yeah. you have to replace, you have to, and that means bonuses. That means that whole period of working somebody up to building their practice, you know, basically the department subsidizes. So I think there's the, the, the cost to support is very small compared to the long-term benefit that you'll get. And, you know, you get more loyal employees that way as well. Yeah. Thank you for making those points. I think they're really yeah. important. Perfect. So Brandon, just some like very linear questions for you. Yeah. Can you walk us through like your email management? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that I need to get better at. <laughs> so I'll tell you, I have been consistently making adjustments. I hope that um, email culture shifts in general and that I continue to make those adjustments. But I, like many people in our specialty and, and medicine in general, was somebody who was just constantly having my email open because I wanted to be you know, Mr. Responsive. And, you know, when if an email hit, no matter what it was, I was gonna, I was gonna get down to it. And, you know, and I think to some extent, that can be helpful when somebody is starting out in a new space, or like, you know, as a new resident in a new department, or things like that. But the, the, the thing that's hard is like, is uh, backing off of that, and you can build really bad habits where you're constantly checking your your email or having your email open or, or having your phone open. So what I've tried to do and what I've been doing more recently, I should say, is again, starting from night, because I like to think of things uh, like the beginning of my day is when I sleep, is 
I try to really make those last two hours of the night. So for me, eight to 10, where I'm not going to check my phone. And I've been really good at that. And what's helped me is keeping the phone out of the room and having, having a smart speaker in the room to wake me up for an alarm instead. So that has been really helpful, both for like quality of sleep, like getting off your phone and not checking your emails. And in general, you shouldn't be getting uh, emergencies at 8 to 10 p.m. In the morning, I do check my email early just to make sure there wasn't anything that I missed the night before. And there will usually be a lot of emails, but rarely is there anything that I need to respond to. And so I just do that check just to see what's going on and, you know, no emergencies. All right, great. So that's 95% of the time, maybe more. When I first respond to emails is when I'm in the train on my way to work. I already know the emails that I have to respond to. I leave them unread. So, you know, a part of task managing for me is keep marking those emails as unread. And then when I mark them as read is when I address them or, you know, spam delete. So I do that early. And then in general, what I try to do is reduce the number of times I check my email, but it still ends up being on average, like at least once an hour. I'd like to get that down. Again, there's different seasons. I have admin roles and it depends on how your team communicates. The team that I work with on the admin side really wants responses to those emails. And so I understand that. And I make it to where I schedule them, but I'm not constantly checking my phone. So I I can, you know, at the end of whatever X hour I have, boom, do it. Or before I go on one of those walks, boom, do it. And then right before I wrap up my day, checking films, clean out my emails, really, really nice. And when I'm at home, right before, again, that 8 p.m., that'll be the last time I check. So like, that six to eight with kids, I'm not checking, do that final check at eight, boom, put it away. So that's worked for me. I think I could still be better. And there's a lot of unnecessary communication that happens on email. It's hard to know what to do with that, you know, because you could move things to Teams and Slack, but then you're just creating, you know, alternative communication streams. So I think probably the best way is to try to schedule it as much as you can. So you're not on your phone or to have two phones, a work phone, you know, an email phone, and then a separate phone from for home. I just, I can't do that very well. So I keep one phone and I just keep it out of my room at night. Yeah. And then the other thing I do, so along with emails, EMR messaging is blowing up and I don't, again, I'm not saying this is the right way to do it, but I give my patients my personal number Because if not, it almost is never a problem. (laughs) Occasionally, you get somebody who likes to use it more than they should. But I understand why. I reduce communication from email because if not, then it's an EMR message. It's a call to your assistant. It's an email from your assistant. It's maybe a call to the nursing station, an email from the nursing station. So you respond to three messages and you still call back. So I'd rather just not have all of that EMR and email and know when there's a problem and, and reach out. And that's worked for me personally. And I treat prostate cancer and there's most of the questions are happen to be non-urgent, but there's a lot of communication. And so, you know, I'll schedule those times to respond as well, but it's definitely reduced 
the amount of email I get about patient questions because they can reach out to me. And so with like text messaging during the day, like, are you checking those as they come up or do you like set aside time for those? Same thing. Texts or emails to me now. Gotcha. Understood. Understood. (laughs) Yeah. So I, you know, I, I basically treat it all pretty much the same. I keep my notifications off, not on moonlight mode, but there's no vibration or sound or anything like that. So it's when I check, I see them. The only thing that will come through is a call, is a phone call. Gotcha. Understood. And so I know you work with the residents. I was not lucky enough to get to work with you as a resident. But um, when you work with your residents, do you meet with them at the beginning of the rotation? Or like, how do you set up a rotation with the resident? Yes, my approach. And again, I'm I'm a, a young attending and I'm sure this will change over time. But in general, I meet with a resident, see where they're at with regards to the rotation in terms of knowledge base. I share with them all of the things that the, all of the information that I find to be most important in a, in a box or Dropbox folder. So I have, I'll have like three really pinnacle PowerPoint presentations that reference all of the literature. And I have a folder of the studies. Um, I also try to make it a collaborative process because residents have different information streams and they bring that to me as well. And so there's a lot of new ways to get information and that residents will continue to evolve and the way that they study and collect information. And I would like to do that as well. So I, you know, in order to, to keep my, I guess, ears glued to the streets on how people are learning, I'm really open to whatever the residents are using as well and, and trying to learn if my resources are helpful. Then I really try to keep things focused on new patient consults and volumes with emphasis on seeing some OTVs as well and follow-ups that are important. All patients that residents see as new patients, I like them to follow as OTBs. In general, I try my best to handle the logistical emails and admin emails. I always CC residents so they can see my style and decide whether or not they like that for themselves. I work in parallel with all of my systems. So like if I see a new patient, I have my note prepped. I copy that one liner, put it over to ARIA, put it over to my email to dosimetry. I mean, to, to the radiation therapist for the schedule. So it's like, you know, I'm just copying it all in parallel, sending that off. The resident will see it. I have my documents up as I'm, you know, getting ready to request a send, make sure that the residents see that, send a SNP so they have it for their files. But I try to handle that so that they can get their contours done and that they can prep and learn about the new patients. So I, you know, I try to set those expectations up front and then check in about patient plans for every patient. So it's like, you know, ongoing feedback about, all right, what would you do? Almost always the answer is something that could be right. And maybe I might have some differences and I'll share why I have those differences and why they may be different from somebody who's in my own department treating the way the resident has seen before. So yeah, I think meeting upfront is very important, but also, you know, checking in around new patients as well. Amazing. Yes, I'm really sad I wasn't able to uh, rotate with you as a resident, but um, same here. Yeah, from feedback that I've had from my co-residents back then, your rotation is really great, not just from the information learned, but just from, you know, watching you manage life and clinic. It was a really great experience for them. Yeah, it's all a collaboration. So I, I benefit more from the residents and, you know, it's just trying to keep that 
as collaborative as as possible and and uh you know they're great residents out there in Red Onk. For sure, for sure. And one random question for you. So you said in the morning you have like the hour of deep work or you might read something. What are you reading nowadays? Yeah, mostly short stuff, mostly scientific. Unless I have a reason to read long novels, I haven't read one for a while, to be honest. If I do, it's like a skim on an airplane. You know, I'm like, there's just so much information. Everyone's competing for your attention these days, TV shows, books, like everyone writes a book. Everyone has like an autobiography now, but I try my best to read short, short scientific things. And maybe that's not so fun, but I like to read from different medical specialties as well, or things outside of medicine. I think that can help with, with creativity and different approaches, especially like when you're trying to reach out to the community and understanding what information's out there and what folks are talking about. So for the most part, like my reads are like 15 minute reads, max. short reads. I try to get everything I can from it. I'm a big skim reader, like give me, like give me the high yield and, you know, again, a function of so much information being out there these days and trying to process a lot of it has been my approach. If I'm on vacation or, you know, chilling, hanging out on a, a staycation on a weekend uh, in Miami on a beach, sure, I'll read something that could melt my brain away, but <laughs> not too much time for that right now. So Brandon, I am, um, I'm also, a, I'm like involved in community outreach and whatnot in my position. And we're trying to get much more involved with it, you know, in the coming year, um, particularly like, you know, I, I treat a lot of breast cancer. So, you know, just, you know, doing similar outreach to underserved communities and whatnot. But I think like something that isn't discussed a lot in Radonc and other specialties, which is like you're trained in Radonc clinically, you know, if you're an MD, PhD or on whatever the Holman pathway, you're also trained in research, maybe, you know, bench to clinic research usually. But then you get, you know, you start your career and you have all of these other roles for which you never had any training. So like, how do you approach, I'm sure it's evolving, like learning about community research and like how to structure a program. And, you know, because so many of us are sort of thrown into these roles, which is amazing, but we have like zero um, know-how. <laughs> and right. we also just don't even have a framework of how to approach something like we, like we used to. So like, for me, I'm like sitting here listening to him, like, maybe I should like look at books on community outreach and read more articles, right. other specialties, you know, do you have a way that you think about it? Yeah, great question. And we should definitely talk about, you know, collaborating and, and doing stuff in the community yeah. outreach and engagement space. But I think this is also one of those things where the older generations of radiation oncologists didn't really get into that much. And it's definitely something that has been more recent, especially the last, you know, five to 10 years, like even 10 years ago, you didn't hear too many people really doing true outreach related work. And so, yeah, we don't get good training on that. We don't get great exposure. I did do a Holman, a Holman pathway, but that was in translational epidemiology. So it was very science oriented and less about how to interface with a community. I will say before that, though, I didn't have much research experience until I decided to go into Rad Onc and I took a year off to do research. Mm -hmm. And before that, everything I had done was like community based. That wasn't making my CV, but was just okay. about, you know, kind of getting out there. And so I think like the most important thing, at least that I've learned, and even was something I took from medical school and not necessarily like from a mentor in medical school is boots on the ground is like number one, going out and having an educational 
seminar, but allowing for time for questions. The Q&A sessions are where like I've learned the most about what's going on day to day in, in the minds of folks in your backyard. Like what are people thinking about? A lot of people are thinking about diet, exercise, exposures, what they can do for prevention. And so I start, I want to make sure that I have a lot of information around those things. And also that it's important to individuals in the community to collect that kind of data. You know, so I've worked on projects with some of our colleagues, one of uh, Crystal's co-residents and in, in developing an app that helps you log, you know, your food intake. And it's really huge. Yeah, Will Jen, he was Dr. Will Jen, he was the the person who came up with this, but he got to see what I was doing on the COE side and brought this idea. And it, it like completely aligns with what the community is doing. So really learning that I think is the most important thing is is getting out into the community and doing sessions. And then the other would be interfacing with others outside of radiation oncology. So certain conferences, like there's a a conference symposium that's around COE. It's called CCCIF that happens every year. I went to that and I, like all the methods and methodology that was being shared, I have no expertise in. And it was an opportunity to learn and see like, all right, what are the folks in this space doing? Like, how is this research being done? And that's exciting to me because it gives me, I, I like learning new things and applying you know, new methodology to maybe what I've learned on how to do clinical trials and how to do genomics research and epidemiology and how can I bring that to COE-based research. So a mix of those two things, you know, getting into the community, one, and two, interfacing with others outside of radiation oncology are really important. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, especially interfacing with people outside of our field. I feel like we are so siloed in Mm -hmm. that you know, most professions don't even know what we do. <laughs> right, <laughs> really. right, right. And, and I think there is so much to be gained from other people. And, you know, even people outside of medicine, like in terms of leadership skills and, you know, community outreach, like there's just so many people, there's people who just have really good frameworks and systems to think about these things. But we're, you know, again, we're just so siloed in our industry that I think, um, you know, it's just, it's a great point. Right. No, it's, uh, you know, we could be leaders in so much. And it's great that we we lead from, uh, you know, radi- a radiation perspective as well. But we're oncologists and, you know, we have the potential to impact a, a broader community of individuals. And I think for anybody who's interested in that, they should go for it and not necessarily anchor to the, you know, the first name in our, in our specialty of, of radiation. Again, it's okay if that's what you're interested in, but we, we can have really broad approaches to, to individuals we serve. Yeah, agreed. And I, th- I think, you know, I think the younger generation is getting that. Like I see a lot of right. people involved in really interesting research. Like I know when I applied, um, you know, I graduated residency in 2017. Like, you know, I felt like you needed like four first author physics papers. You know what I mean? Right. It's nice. Like I'm seeing a lot of people, I think maybe in, also in the age of AI, where I think AI is applicable to all industries, you know, but definitely to ours for sure. Like right. People are really starting to, you know, explore. I actually did my year off of research at Brigham. So I know Paul Nguyen went well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I worked for Claire yeah. Beard, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, yeah. So nice. I had a very yeah. nice. Or that cold, junior group. Yeah. I had a very yeah. nice cold year in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh yeah. 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 You get a thick accent uh, shoveling snow out there. Yeah. 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 So no, I think um, uh, this conversation has been great. Anything else, anything else, Crystal, you want to talk about or, or even Brandon, anything, this is your, this is your PSA to the rat. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, for anybody listening, I think in terms of time management and, and life management in general, I know I've said this a few times, but I, I want to emphasize it, that flexibility, be kind to yourself, your life will change. Even if you, you have an idea of where you think you're headed, it may be very different. Or you may achieve the things that you want to achieve and your life may look very different than what you might anticipate, whether it's, you know, having kids or getting a career position somewhere or, or what it may be. You really don't know how things are going to turn out. You may you know, you may have family illness, loss around you. And so it's, you know, it's really important to be flexible and kind to yourself so you could keep things going as much as you can, nurture the relationships around you. I think having at least one really close relationship with somebody is important, whether it's a spouse or a partner or a best friend or colleague, but having somebody you could really share intimate details of your thoughts without being judged and with, you know, keep being able to, to trust somebody and sharing that information is important and know the things that you absolutely feel are necessary. And I would say minimum necessary for you to have what you think is a life worth living and create boundaries around that and try your best to start from there and say, all right, if these are the things that I want, that are the minimum that I want, build your schedule around that rather than the other way around. Otherwise, you won't ever get to those things. There's always more work. There's always another paper. There's always another grant. There's always another committee. There's always something else waiting for you on the work and career side. But so if you don't prioritize, you know, your personal things that make you happy, it won't happen. And you see a lot of people in their late career never prioritize that. And it's a tough thing to deal with later. So having that awareness early, it, I feel like is really important. Yeah, you said it very, very well. And I just really want to thank you. I think, you know, these conversations with people who have such amazing, you know, academic reputations, such as yourself, you know, I recently I have a group chat. And um, my buddy, Neil Tonk, who was actually our first <laughs> guest, he said, Oh, Brandon Mahal, he's the future of prostate cancer research in Rat Onk. No, I really Thank mean, you. you know, I think it, it means yeah. a lot to us to have somebody on like with your reputation who talks about these things, um, you know, even saying be kind to yourself. I think it really changes the culture in which we're all. Right. Existing. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. For thank you. Me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for the the work y'all are doing and excited to hear from others, too, and, and learn. I think a lot of people can learn from this initiative and, and from others. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Time Titans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform, and let's continue the journey to a more efficient, fulfilling, and harmonious life. Remember to check out our online platforms for additional notes.